0: This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Jeans, they're an American staple. No article of clothing is more closely linked to our nation's history. Today, denim's a $90 billion industry, but that success didn't come easy. This is a BBC Radio for Archive Edition of Alistair Cook's Letter from America. Good morning. The offspring of Czech Jews who died at Auschwitz, a new life in Britain, a Labour seat in Parliament, a man who implausibly teased a fortune from scientific publications, a titan in the old style. It's not often that the New York Times pays a memorial tribute to a tycoon. But last Thursday morning, these were some of the words that came from a sympathetic editorial. Of course, the circumstances of Mr. Maxwell's death were so originally eerie, so much in keeping with the almost Hollywood myth that sooner or later envelops wealthy tycoons, that the death was the lead story on our nightly television news as it must have been around the earth. I happened that evening to be in the company of a group of 60 or 70 doctors and hearing the complications in determining whether or not a person had drowned did save me from the lurid and sinister speculations that some tabloids and supermarket giveaways were bound to advance. My own reflections on the sudden, sad death of Mr. Maxwell have nothing to do with pathology, but with economics. The day after he died, the New York Times had five pieces, three on the management and fate of a financial empire, a confident listing of Mr. Maxwell's huge assets and his huge debts, On following pages, by chance, there were two accounts of one giant American corporation and one giant bank which are both in dire trouble, and two famous American tycoons who are in dire trouble. But, in the paper also, and at night on the tube, there persisted joyful, seductive ads, commercials for these desperate banks and corporations, all telling you what gorgeous new bonuses and goodies they have in store for you, at practically no cost. Just subscribe, just take out a card. Later, you read that one of our famous tycoons owes $1.2 billion, but is getting a new bank loan to float a $2 billion corporation. These bewildering paradoxes threw me back to the only lecture in economics I ever attended. It meant nothing at the time, but it begins to make sense now. It was 62 years ago in Cambridge, England, and it was given by the eminent John Maynard Keynes. All I remember was his saying, if you owe the Bank of England a 100 pounds and you leave the country they will catch you and put you in jail. If you owe the Bank of England a million pounds, they will put you on the board. Talking of time and mortality, we can be sure once a month, more or less, of picking up the morning paper and reading a long, predictable tribute to some famous man or woman, to somebody who is generally admitted to be supreme at a single trade, writer, artist, musician. I suppose actors and actresses get more universal attention because they are supreme in what is the most popular and envied art. So there were no surprises in the processional columns devoted to Laurence Olivier or Peggy Ashcroft. They were at the peak of their profession, and so far as I've read... Nobody discovered when they were gone gifts, qualities that had not been justly celebrated during their prime. But also, from time to time, a lesser actor dies and there will be no surprises in his obituaries either. Because we took the measure of him long ago, he became identified with one sort of drama or comedy or character, he has been classified and filed away without a second thought. Sometimes we're wrong, and when we are, it's time to say so. Fred McMurray died last Monday in Los Angeles, and in no time we were reading ample tributes that struck at once a similar note. Quote, the personable, unassuming actor who starred in some of the best film comedies of the 1930s and 40s and was later the protagonist in popular Walt Disney fantasies and in a long-running television situation comedy. Literally true, from the first fling with Carol Lombard in the 1935 Hands Across the Table, throughout the next 20-odd years, he was among the most engaging, easygoing, leading men. He was himself a type that probably never would or could have been a stage actor, But he was made for the movies, that's to say, not an actor acting to a camera, but a human being happening to be photographed, unselfconscious, seemingly unaware of the camera. By the way, in one of the last interviews he gave on television here, Laurence Olivier was asked if there was any one actor, actress, who stood out, as the supreme film actor. And he said quite quickly, oh, no competition, Gary Cooper. I think that same unawareness, a gift to behave rather than act, belonged to Fred McMurray too. But to say that is only to analyze what everybody noticed and praised in him. My point in bringing him up here is that in his 80-odd films he created one unforgettable male character that raised him in only four films into the top rank of quintessentially movie actors. That we look back on him now and forget or overlook this is probably nobody's fault but his own because it's true that most of his career was given over to light comedy, farce, playful fantasy, routine westerns. He was, in life, a very easygoing type. I take my movie parts as they come. I'm lazy in spurts. I am, I admit, no great screen lover. Sometimes scenes include people who just say hi to indicate they're in love. I play those scenes very well. Such a type is not likely to press agents and producers to pick for him variations on a human type I think he played with genius better than anybody in the movies. To take the type I have in mind to its extreme, am I saying that McMurray could have played Raskolnikov in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment? He would have been very fine. But the type I'm thinking about, the four... Matchless performances of his career, whereof I was going to say a recognizable American type. That's wrong. Say rather a marvelously American representation of a fascinating, if regrettable, human male, an agreeable, suspiciously affable, offhand fraud a reliable insurance salesman caught up with a sleazy blonde and suddenly way out of his depth in murder, no less. A businessman, philanderer, available at weekends to be in a slightly shamefaced way, a pimp of sorts, that was the apartment. A nice cop turned crooked with the help of a woman, pushover. And in the Kane Mutiny, the unforgettable Navy lieutenant the backer-up of his mutinous buddy who jibs when his own career is at risk. It's interesting, I think, that of these, one should have been written by Dmitrik, the son of recent Ukrainian immigrants, and the best two, The Apartment and the Incomparable Double Indemnity, were both written and directed by Billy Wilder, a Viennese refugee from Hitler whose mother and family died in concentration camps. Perhaps it takes a European early acquainted with grief to see the dark side of the country club comic. Anyway, I'm sure in the next months or so you'll have an opportunity to see one or other of these. Most of all, I hope, the rather heartbreaking performance of the insurance salesman in Double Indemnity, a plainly decent dependable young man tripped by one false step, a character tended and nursed throughout the movie with great art by Edward G. Robinson. During the week, I brought up this side, this gift for playing heels, with one or two American friends who remember the McMurray movies reasonably well. I don't think they knew what I was talking about, And I recall now the only two critics who immediately recognized a supreme film actor in McMurray were both Englishmen. The day the film came out in London, in 1944, James Agate wrote in his diary, This is a most magnificent murder story, with the moral that a man and woman who put their heads together to murder her husband begin to loathe each other before the body is cold." McMurray is surprisingly magical and touching, Barbara Stanwyck completely convincing as the common bloody-minded hussy. The morning that the McMurray obituary appeared at deserved length in the New York Times, I took out the usual film dictionaries, companions, encyclopedias, and what I read was what I'd expected, the gifted, offhand, amiable, white comedian, what McMurray himself called Smiley McMurray, my decent Rotarian type. These humdrum foreseen pieces recall to me the one critic who spotted first this precious character and put his finger with eloquent skill on the way it was played. The critic is David Thompson from his biographical dictionary. At his best, he says, what? McMurray is playing is a romantic lead built on quicksands, a hero compelled to betray, and the ingredients of the McMurray men are paradoxical but consistent. Brittle cheerfulness, an anxious smile that subsides into slyness, the semblance of a masculine carriage that turns out insubstantial and shifty a rare character who let the tawdry conman grin through the all-American wholesomeness with a rare conjurer's swiftness. It's a pleasure to pay what I believe is the right kind of tribute to an artist who has had many tributes, but most of them, for the wrong things. In life, McMurray was much like his comedy self, without the phoniness. More than acting, he liked to fish, paint, cook and play golf. For 37 years, he was happily married to a former nun. That was Letter from America with Alastair Cook. You can find more Letters from America and thousands of other programmes for curious minds on the Radio 4 website. When you need your bank, Capital One is right in the palm of your hand. So you can check your balance, deposit checks, pay bills, and transfer money from your phone with a top-rated app. This is banking reimagined. Get started online anytime. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.